Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many things in life are unknowable. What happens after we die, how magnets work, the source of that certain special feeling you get when you look across a crowded room and catch the eye of that green trebuchet in the corner. What is knowable is that this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a group of independent, intelligent podcasters working together to get ahead in this crazy, wonderful, mixed-up world. This month, we're celebrating the work, nay, the phenomenon that is Chris Stewart's History of China podcast. Now, many of you may have heard of China in the news recently, and maybe you stopped and thought, huh, China, I wonder if anything ever happened there. It turns out the answer is yes, and Chris is doing a show about it. So check out the History of China and many other great Agora shows on a podcatcher near you or at the Agora Podcast Network website. This month, we have two new contributors to thank with snarky regnal names. First up is Gus, who shall be known henceforward as Viscount Gus, the Mostly Chaste. Baronet Altcode, the Substitute, has earned a new position at court and shall be known henceforward as Baronet Altcode, the Substitute, the Polyalphabetic Cipher Lord of the Royal Cat's Twitter account. Congratulations to... Baronet Altcode, and Gust the Mostly Chase for their many, many achievements. If you too wish to join the ranks of the contributors to this show, go to our website, uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia Podcast.weebly.com, and go to the store page, where you'll see buttons that you can use to become a patron uh, and make monthly contributions, or make a one time secure donation via PayPal. Also, you might want to check out our Facebook page and join in the conversation, uh, or just shoot me an email. Thanks very much. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. Paris, the mid-1930s, in front of a room full of simultaneously terrified and bored students. In this triumphant progress of the manor, the abuse of force had nowhere been a negligible factor. With good reason, the official texts of the Carolingian period were already deploring the opposition of the poor by the powerful. The latter, as a rule, had little desire to deprive men of their land, for the soil without labor to till it was of little value. What they wanted was to assert their authority over the small cultivators, along with their fields. Quote from Mark Bloch's Feudal Society, Volume 1, as read by Eric Halsey of the Bulgarian History Podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 45, Class Structure Part 3, The Commons Part 1. Over the last, geez, year or so, we have discussed a number of topics relating to class structure in the Middle Ages, focusing broadly on the character and preoccupations of the nobility and the clergy of medieval Europe. We have by no means exhausted the available topics within these subheadings, but it's time to finally close the circle and discuss the third major portion of the medieval population, the commoners, the peasantry, what have you. 
Depending on where and when, it's estimated that the commoners made up anywhere from 50% to 95% of the European population, with the higher figures being earlier. They made up the majority of your DNA if you come from Europe, and if you woke up tomorrow in the Middle Ages, sheer probability dictates that you would wake up as a peasant. Somehow, this reality never really makes it into time travel or fantasy stories. Indeed, the story of the commons is mostly ignored in our popular culture and consciousness. You are all educated and good-looking, so I won't insult your intelligence by pretending this is a problem unique to the Middle Ages. History is written by the rich, both in terms of actions and in terms of the documents that are likely to survive the ravages of time, and so the stories of the elite are the ones that reach us. Their stories aren't better, just better adapted. And yet this distortion of the record sometimes makes people think that this is how things should be. I'm always somehow surprised to find this, but in my many wanderings across the wastelands of online chat groups, I seem inevitably to find more than a few people who argue that the peasants simply had no stories worth hearing, and that the only stories that matter are those of the rich and powerful. In short, the repetition of these stories has become normative, and people become threatened by any attempt to broaden the narrative. Podcast footnote. I should probably explain that word. It tends to get thrown all around a lot these days, but it's not necessarily part of everyday vocabulary for most people. It's in danger of becoming meaningless jargon before it actually makes its impact, which is a shame because it's a useful word. The word normative just means something that's come to be seen as normal. A baseline, against which everything else is measured. It's sort of gotten a negative connotation these days, but in its basic form, it's neutral. Now, for example, I grew up in New Jersey. For me, New York-style pizza is the normative case, and so for me, the word pizza implies a thin, triangular wedge of dough with a crispy bottom, a chewy interior, covered with a small amount of very flavorful, very herbed tomato sauce, a somewhat thicker layer of fresh molten mozzarella cheese, and a small, reasonable selection of toppings. The wedge is intended to be served hot, on a paper plate or napkin, and is eaten with the hands. It's acceptable to fold the slice to aid consumption. I think I'm going to need a minute. <clears throat> Having baselines is important in our attempts to understand the world. Baselines help engineers understand material quality, and they help doctors uncover the sources of illness, and we could go on. But we should understand that the normative case is almost always a statistical product, based on a sort of idealized composite of experiences or observations. For example, my understanding of pizza comes from eating at a lot of pizza places around central New Jersey during my youth. People from the Chicago area have a very different normative case for what pizza is, because they grew up eating a different kind of pizza. And for the record, I'm open to the idea that both kinds of pizza are tasty in different ways. Andrew is not, and therefore he is not invited to my pizza party. The danger of the normative case comes when we forget or fail to understand that the normative is not some sort of unassailable fact set in stone. The best case is that this kind of confusion leads to amusing, if unnecessary, arguments about things like what kind of pizza is superior. <clears throat> the worst case is that people feel that the basis of their identity or their understanding of reality is threatened by changes to the normative case, and then they lash out at individuals or groups who do not conform to their expectations. Modern debates about gender involve a lot of misunderstandings of this type, but that is a rabbit hole we will inevitably crawl down some other time. End podcast footnote. To me, the idea that the poor do not have stories of interest to a modern reader is absurd on its face. It implies that our stories, the things that happen to you and me in our lives, are not going to be worthy of attention in a hundred years. I think that undervalues the importance of the individual, but it also undermines the ability of the historian to attain any degree of understanding of events. The peasantry of the Middle Ages faced unique and powerful challenges, and found ways to overcome them, survive, and express their agency in a hostile world. In so doing, they held feudal society together, they literally kept it fed, and allowed it to function. It's in the lives and experiences of the lower classes that we really learn about the economics and social structures of the Middle Ages, the practicalities of power on the ground. This is what allows us to get a real picture of how society was organized beyond the ideals of the men with swords and fancy hats. So today we'll begin to explore how the commoners of Europe lived in the Middle Ages. Doing so is going to require us to go over some of the ground we discussed in numerous previous episodes. 
uh, as we work to frame the way society was structured on the ground level. This may make this episode seem a bit noble-heavy for an episode devoted to the commoners, but fear not, we'll be getting more to the, like, day-in-the-life kinds of discussions in later episodes. This episode is also going to be the story of several narratives. These narratives will all sort of deal with how commoners experienced the fall of the Roman Empire and the birth of the new social order. But there's a major geographic element to these narratives that I need to address up front. And this brings us back to normative cases. The narrative that I'm going to be presenting in the first half of this episode is going to be based largely on the work done by Marc Bloch in Feudal Society, the large two-volume work that has come to define his career. Some additions to the picture presented by Marc Bloch have been provided by Chris Wickham in his Medieval Europe, The Oxford History of Medieval Europe by Life in a Medieval Village and Life in the Medieval City by Joseph and Francis Geis, and by some of my own research as well as many, many other sources. But the core of the narrative remains to that presented by Bloch. As I said in this past year's Potiversary episode, this two-volume tour de force that he wrote was based on a decade or more of research into the land-use patterns of the peasantry in the region around Paris. He dug into legal records, birth and death certificates, he used aerial mapping, and numerous other innovative resources that were not common at the time. He did this all to help reconstruct how people lived at this time in a way that has stood up to 60 years of critique. The additions by the other historians I just mentioned are minor in comparison to the whole. But there's one major flaw in his methodology. It was focused, with laser-like intensity, on northern France, and the Paris area in particular. Assuming these lessons were applied in completely the same way from the Elbe to the Atlantic and from the Arctic Sea to Malta is clearly problematic. As is so often the case, the originator of this idea knew, knew the problems. Bloch himself recognized that this was an issue and said as much in his work. Bloch was simply trying to establish a baseline using this new, more rigorous methodology which further studies could elaborate upon. What Bloch could not foresee was how his own reputation, combined with the wonderful clarity of his own research, combined to make the case of northern France into a normative case that would go unchallenged for several decades. People essentially presented Bloch's vision of medieval Europe as the typical scenario, and then looked at everything else as an aberration. Once post-structuralist historians began to question the normative assumptions attached to Bloch's narrative, it sparked a debate that is, to a large extent, ongoing. A very small number of historians question even Bloch's picture of northern France. A larger group say that while Bloch's picture may apply to northern France, there's so much variation in the Middle Ages that nothing that he described was really transferable to other places. I don't think that's the majority view, and it's not the view that I hold to, which, you know, given that I'm engaged in the history of Europe as a whole, and how the Middle Ages contributed to the wars of religion in the early modern period, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to think these views go too far. I think it's clear that the core areas of Europe, at the very least those areas part of or influenced by the Carolingian Empire, were part of a single cultural continuity. That said, there's obvious variation across that space that needs some explanation. So I'm going to spend the second half of this episode outlining ways that we can understand how the experiences of the peasantry varied across the cultural space, based on work done by more recent historians, chiefly Chris Wickham. In presenting the work in this order, I am contributing in some way to the view of Bloch's narrative of northern, the northern French peasantry as normative. I'm sorry. I'm doing things this way because I have to start somewhere, because most historians honestly still follow Bloch's lead in starting here, and because Bloch's work is just so dang good. I'm not starting here because northern France actually represents some sort of typical case. While there are some themes that tie things together, the thing I most want to convey in this and subsequent episodes is the sheer variation in lived experience in the Middle Ages. I hope this will enrich your understanding of this period and ultimately help you appreciate how this contributed to changes in, the early, in early modern Europe. So, with all that out of the way, let's begin with Rome. As you know from previous episodes, the Roman Empire was a highly urbanized society, with many commoners living in the many urban centers around Europe. 
But those living in cities needed food, and in a pre-modern society this meant that, even in the Roman Empire, the majority of the population lived in the countryside and engaged in farming. All through the Roman period, many of these farmers had relatively small family farms. Many were in fact so-called colonia, settlements of army veterans who were intended to live as free farmers, loyal to the empire, and whose offspring would be an ongoing source of recruits. Many others, though, were just small, free farmers whose ancestors had always been there. There were a few large estates owned by the wealthy and worked by a combination of paid workers, tenant farmers, and slaves. Everyone in this system paid taxes to a professional bureaucracy, staffed by the wealthier peasants, overseen by the richest of the rich, and whose purpose mainly was to pay the army composed of poor peasants. One key narrative, uh, popular amongst historians, is that this whole system was subject to massive distortions by the expansion and fall of the empire. Empire allowed the rich to become even richer and eventually escape the taxation system via massive levels of corruption. More and more of the burden of military service and taxation fell on poor farmers, while more and more land was owned by the rich and worked by the slaves. The small farmers often sought to physically escape when things became hopeless, which further hollowed out the imperial tax and military base, resulting in laws passed by Diocletian that tied free farmers to their land. This left free farmers little option except to sell out to their wealthy neighbors as the only alternative in their attempts to escape their tax burdens. Ultimately, a huge portion of the landmass of the empire was wrapped up in agricultural slave plantations, mostly owned by the senatorial class, though there was of course still an admixture of tenant farmers and paid workers. What proportion of the population of the countryside was made up of free farmers versus slaves versus tenant farmers is hard to say as it varied by time and place and few real records survive. The estimates I've seen vary between 30% and 50%. One thing we can be sure of is that the process of agglomerating land helped drive free citizens into the cities. It kept taxable wealth away from the state and reduced incentives for the poor to care about the stability of the empire. All of this definitely contributed to many of the 5,875 reasons that the Roman Empire fell. But that's another show. From here, there are two not mutually exclusive narratives to discuss as it relates to the common people of the empire. Here's the more conventional version. As the Roman Empire declined, as plagues, civil wars, and invasions ravaged the populations of the empire, the essentially urban fabric of the imperial system was torn asunder. Food shipments were interrupted, trade collapsed, and towns were besieged and sacked. Aqueducts were cut. Many of all classes fled the cities. The rich were, of course, able to take up direct control of their estates in the country, while the poor presumably sought shelter with relatives, begged a place in small settlements, stole the resources they needed, were enslaved, or, in many cases, died of starvation or ill use in one of the many glorious ditches built by the Roman Empire at its height. For the cities, this looked like an apocalypse. Populations sharply declined, allowing agricultural pursuits to happen within the city walls of once great metropolises. All of these dead and dying poor people would eventually create a problem for the rich landowners. Such wealthy men and women couldn't possibly have worked all the land they owned, even if they had been willing to, and as the empire fell, it turned out that they were running out of slaves. This would have ramifications for the way slaves were treated in the empire. Podcast footnote. Okay, let's do it. Let's talk about slaves. For many people in the modern world, and in particular for Americans, the image of slavery that we have in our minds relates to the chattel slavery system of the American South. Many historians leap to point out that this image of slavery is inappropriate for the ancient world. First and most importantly, and this is true, slaves in the Roman world were not subject to a system of extreme racial bias. It was entirely possible and even common for slaves to be freed in the Roman system, and many historians point out that the household slaves of very important people could become very powerful indeed. If, say, your master was an emperor, and you were his personal secretary, but also a slave, you became a key power broker in the empire, whatever your legal status. Many historians simply end the discussion here and move on. I am very irritated by this. Glibly saying, oh, it was different when you're talking about slavery of all things, seems to imply that, in some way, slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't that bad. 
The worst part is that the examples so often used are of people who were extreme exceptions, not the rule. So let's dig into this a little bit more. Slaves came from a wide variety of places in the ancient world. You could be enslaved for debt, or sold by your parents to pay for their debts. Uh, the latter was always fairly uncommon, and the former became more and more difficult as Roman law became more developed, and this larger and larger percentage of the population of the empire became Roman citizens. Certainly, one could not run a slave plantation economy on this kind of slaving system, although criminals who were enslaved uh, did tend to end up working the mines. So most slaves probably came from war. During the empire's expansion phase, slaves would be taken by taking prisoners in battle, by enslaving the population of a city that resisted a siege, or any number of other violent situations where the Roman military interacted with large civilian populations. Even once the empire's borders stabilized, there were sources of slaves in raids across imperial borders into enemy territory. These slaves were then distributed across the empire via a interconnected waterborne system of trading routes, which included several known entrepots and depots, all ultimately ending in major cities where human beings were auctioned off like cattle. Under the classic Roman legal system, the paterfamilias was the head of the household, and had the power of life or death over everyone in it. This included his offspring, and the women in the family, and all the slaves that the family owned. The paterfamilias was entirely in his rights to beat and kill any of these individuals. Of course, in most circumstances, the execution of children and wives was relatively rare, but slave executions were at least common enough to have a legally codified method in place. For the record, crucifixion was the method, and at least in the city of Rome, the Appian Way was the place. Within the paterfamilias system, there is a substantial amount of evidence that physical abuse against children was not just common, but expected. I think that we can assume that beatings administered to adult wives would have been less frequent, while beatings on the slaves were more frequent, though basically that's just a guess. The rape of female slaves seems to have been very common to the point that household manuals offer advice as to how to avoid making one's wife jealous of the victim. Equally common was the rape of young boys. Some slaves within the household would have been of a higher status, and would likely not have been subject to regular beatings or assaults. Slaves who had been educated before their capture, or who had some sort of valuable profession, would have been especially valuable, and served as tutors for the children, personal secretaries. There was even an entire class of slaves that were essentially investments. Like if you bought a blacksmith, you could set him up as a blacksmith, buy him a shop, and then you'd collect you know, his profits. While the paterfamilias would always be within their rights to beat and assault such individuals, presumably it was bad form and poor use of a high-status investment. All the slaves we've discussed so far would have been part of the, the more immediate household of the paterfamilias. But for rich Roman families, the legal household sometimes extended thousands of miles to distant agricultural plantations worked by hundreds of slaves. These slaves are the main topic of discussion for this episode. Agricultural slaves were nothing more than beasts of burden in the Roman system. At the height of the empire, they were nearly disposable, as tens of thousands of slaves constantly flooded into the empire, which meant that the prices were low. While not the subject of a system based explicitly on visual racial bias, many groups, such as the Germans, were heavily discriminated against socially, were thought to be subhuman, etc., while the agricultural plantations of the Roman Empire were not working to feed raw materials to a ravenous industrial system, the way plantations were in the United States, they were growing cash crops for sale to the rapidly growing Roman urban centers. In these cities, the Roman government provided free or heavily subsidized grain, which meant that cereal production was essentially a money-printing operation. The more you grew, the more the government bought. Direct evidence is limited, but it seems like there was no legal or economic incentive for the absentee landlords of these massive agricultural plantations to value the life of a given slave over that of profit. Certainly there would be some equilibrium point where you needed to get a certain amount of work out of a slave before they died in order to be ahead of the game, but when the price of a human was low, so would be the standards of care. 
It's worth saying that growing wheat and other food crops is less terrible than growing cotton or sugarcane, and the lack of racial bias probably did make a big difference in the ability of the overseers of a plantation to relate to the slaves in the Roman Empire versus the American South, which probably did have a beneficial impact on conditions. So yes, you probably shouldn't rely overmuch on our pop cultural representations of American slavery when imagining its Roman equivalent. But let's not be cute about this. Being a slave in any time or place is a terrible fate, and the commonalities between the life of a Roman agricultural slave and that of a slave in the American South probably outnumber the differences. When we study the Roman Empire at its height, therefore, we have to remember that for all its glory and pageantry, what we're studying is a brutal slave society built on the misery of a huge underclass that may have made up as much as half of the total population. Before I move on from the subject, I just want to be clear that the link between Roman slavery and quote-unquote modern slavery is far from existing only in the modern mind. As you know, Roman law influenced Europe throughout the entire Middle Ages, up to the early modern period. Roman literature also survived, including numerous household management handbooks. Roman ideas about slavery thus had a direct and real impact on the people who set up the new slaving system that developed in the early modern period. This slaving system developed first in the western Mediterranean and then moved across the Atlantic to the Caribbean and eventually North America. End podcast footnote. Given how the slaving system was fed by the Roman military machine, the growing dependence of the Roman agricultural and trade economy system on slave labor was a weakness that none of the time really considered fully. It made the Roman economy part of a military machine that fed on geographic growth to a dangerously large extent. And when the empire faced periods like the crisis of the 3rd and 5th centuries, slaves started to become harder to find. Given the treatment that agricultural slaves were subjected to, the slave population does not seem to have been demographically stable. As the empire's borders calcified and began to contract, this gradually created a labor shortage. Starting in the 3rd century, Roman laws began to change the relationship of the owner and the slave. Killing slaves without judicial authority became punishable, gradually came to count as murder, and soon even physical abuse came to be heavily circumscribed. Of course, it also became illegal to free slaves, but by that point, few slaves were being freed anyway. Let's be clear, the owner was always the paterfamilias, with wide powers of life or death. If a slave owner claimed that he had accidentally beaten his slave to death, or was acting in self-defense, they probably got the benefit of the doubt. But repeat offenders exposed themselves to legal and social scorn, and the economics of the thing were just becoming unfavorable. With the slave population in decline, an empire-wide labor shortage set in, which would have created inflation even if the empire's finances had not been a currency economist's nightmare. This opens up an alternative narrative of the closing days of the empire to that which we discussed earlier. You see, cities in pre-modern times probably never had positive rates of native population growth. While wealthy Romans had access to fresh flowing water, and while public baths did exist, the poor definitely had to go to public fountains to fetch water, and there was no system of plumbing. In short, public health would not have met even the standards found in modern cities in the developing world. With illness rampant, cities relied on in-migration of the poor and desperate from the countryside to fill in the holes in the population left by mortality. The stresses of the 3rd and 5th centuries, namely plagues and barbarian attacks on public infrastructure, certainly would not have helped the situation. With the developing labor shortage in the countryside, increasing demand there for labor, with plagues rampant, and with cities as the main target of barbarian attacks, it's likely that many peasants simply chose to become the tenants of wealthy senatorial landlords rather than risk a move to the city. With no incoming population, in addition to the other problems, city demographics may have collapsed simply due to the attrition of pre-modern public health systems. In the countryside, tenant farmers would become the clients of their new landlords, but they still had the rights of citizens. On these agricultural villas, they probably worked side by side with the slaves and gradually communities formed. In these communities, the fall of the empire was maybe less stark than it's often portrayed. The land still produced food, and though communities had to find ways to defend themselves from those who wanted to take their food, at least they had a place. With the landlord as head of the local community, many free farmers held on to their land and their rights. 
Tenants became more and more dependent on the Lord and could no longer leave their land, but the Lord needed workers, and so the Lord gradually improved his treatment of the slaves. The conversion to Christianity probably did not hurt this process, as slaves were seen to some extent as equals in the eyes of God, and the agricultural image of the Bible encouraged community leaders to act as shepherds of their flocks. As the government apparatus outside the villas evaporated, this social system would remain the basic unit of social organization throughout the rise of the Carolingian Empire. Indeed, one of the more remarkable things about this system is how much it remained a Roman one, even up to the Carolingian Empire. The peculiarities varied by location, but in Spain and Italy, free peasants continued to be taxed by a bureaucracy, while in Francia their tax dues to the empire were converted to ones of military service. And they became the core of the Carolingian military, which, remember, was still an infantry army. Landlords paid taxes and organized military service from the tenants and slaves in their household, but their possessions were spread out, often over large distances, which helped retain their loyalty to the particular section of the Roman state that they happened to find themselves in. Indeed, this system expanded under the Carolingian Empire, as aristocrats bought or were given lands all over the Carolingian uh, imperial area, forming the bureaucratic core of the Frankish Empire and serving for land instead of salaries. The Frankish kingdom continued to attempt to enforce Roman justice, but ominously, perhaps, relied on these wealthy aristocrats to do so. While we don't know their record in disputes amongst free peasants, it's fairly clear from the re repeated legislation on the subject that these aristocratic enforcers of justice were not so good at enforcing justice upon each other. This made the social fabric of the empire fragile, and it put the aristocracy above the peasantry in terms of their relationship with the legal system. This happened pretty much just as the sons of Louis the Pious began their disastrous civil wars. As these civil wars broke out, aristocrats tended to have to pick sides, and when they did, they tended to lose some of their far-off possessions that happened to be in the land of the other side of the civil war. On the other hand, they tended to get compensated with lands on their side of the border. This process gradually eroded the loyalty of the nobility to the imperial project and reinforced sectional loyalty. And as the government increasingly relied on these aristocrats for support during the civil wars, they were less and less able or even interested in correcting their abuses of the peasantry. Now, I've already told this story in two ways, but let's finally look at what all this meant for the peasantry. In effect, this process ground down the free, small peasant farmers into more or less oblivion. With no one to tell them no, aristocrats were free to use physical force to make these free peasants sell out. It is suggested that some peasants may have done so voluntarily. There was certainly a legal framework for this to happen, which was used in many places, but this is a debated topic. My personal suspicion is that while voluntary sales did happen, and coerced sales also happened, and while they're certainly not mutually exclusive in any given time period, my suspicion is that there were more voluntary sales in the early era, uh, during the decline of the empire, when peasants needed shelter from tax officials, lawlessness, and marauding barbarians. Later on, the barbarians remained a marauding, but the other incentives to sell out had sort of gone. The tax system was gone in Francia, and it isn't like the landlords did a particularly good job at stopping the Vikings. It seems to me like the final destruction of the free peasantry was more akin to the mafia demanding protection money than anything else. So even as the status of slaves became almost tolerable, the lot of the formerly free tenant farmers became so much worse as, as to be indistinguishable from that of the slaves. The end result is described as serfdom. In broad terms, the agricultural peasants owed some portion of their crops and their labor to the local lord. They were not allowed to leave. The lord controlled all local justice, and while legal systems did not fully permit beatings and murder, the punishments that could be invoked against the landlord were merely... corrective. In many ways, the serfs of the Middle Ages faced a situation similar to that of the sharecroppers of the Reconstruction-era American South. While guaranteed some basic rights, these were heavily circumscribed by a system which viewed them as a subhuman source of labor. But, even more so than in the slavery situation, 
This comparison is really imperfect, because the medieval lord ultimately needed the serfs more than the landlords of the south needed their sharecroppers. As I've described in the episodes on the nobility, the fragmentation of the Frankish Empire did not stop with the establishment of the three kingdoms of Italy and East and West Francia. The new system of privatized executive power became a widening gyre that gradually undermined central power and created a disaggregate cellular power structure. The majority of the nobility now owned only a few estates, and were constantly threatened by their neighbors. The lord would always have the upper hand over the peasantry in military terms, but ultimately this had become a game of chicken between the lord and the peasants. A lord who was merciless in his extractions and caused a peasant uprising would probably win militarily, but that victory would result in the slaughter of the lord's serfs, leaving his or her land desolate and unproductive. Since labor was scarce, it would be impossible to bring in new help, possibly for decades at a time. And when most lords only had a few such estates, such a disaster would rapidly undermine the lord's ability to feed his retinue and protect himself from his enemies. A related issue comes from the very nature of public leadership in the Middle Ages. Now, this is an issue that's sort of danced in and out of our narrative, and I'm not going to be able to fully address it here. But suffice it to say that there was an assumption, in pretty much all of Europe, that decision-making had to be done in consultation with the public, quote-unquote. Of course, we should not imagine any kind of systematic, representative, democratic, or even republican institutional framework, but it is clear that there was some sort of assumption that a decision reached by a leader had to be made in the presence of witnesses, who would have the right to comment freely on the matter at hand before the leader made his or her decision, and then would disseminate. I apologize for being a bit cagey about my pronouns just now, but the reality is that this assumption of rule in the presence of the public was so deeply ingrained in early medieval society as to be present almost ubiquitously at every level of social organization, and in almost every geography. Under Charlemagne, no law could be promulgated until the emperor organized a diet, or assembly. For those who have been reading ahead, you will know that these diets would have an extensive half-life, as they came to be the mechanism by which Holy Roman Emperors were chosen. Similar assemblies can be seen in the Witan of Anglo-Saxon England. But we also see similar organizations with less of a... Uh, elective power in the town councils that self-organized in Italy, in the manor courts of feudal estates, and in, in any number of other similar representative organizations. Because these assemblies had no firm organizational constitution, it was very easy to manipulate them. Leaders in the Middle Ages tended to have wide powers of action, and the customary requirement was often satisfied simply by making decisions in the presence of their retainers. Still, this custom of assembly gave those who were ruled an ability and an expectation that they could organize for collective action. For the peasants, this would mean that each village would develop a corporate identity, which allowed for what we might call collective bargaining with their lord. So while the Reconstruction-era landowners of the American South could replace unruly individual sharecroppers demanding their rights, lords in the Middle Ages were gradually forced to settle into an equilibrium with their serfs. On the one hand, the lords of the Middle Ages faced a massive labor shortage. On the other, the peasants rapidly developed corporate identities that allowed them agency in their interactions with the wider world. These circumstances made it possible for them, over the course of generation after hard-fought, miserable, and humiliating generation, to force their will on the lords. Podcast footnote. I have strayed into some dangerous waters here, so I just need to be clear. I do not believe that any class of people is entirely without agency. As badly as the slaves and sharecroppers of the American South were treated in the U.S., we know that they always found ways to resist, even if the power structures in place at the time kept this resistance largely in check. Some people ran, some composed songs of resistance, some committed suicide, and almost all slaves engaged in intentional work slowdowns of some sort or another. While comparison between historic events can be very valuable in illuminating and helping us learn through metaphor, in many ways all these events are completely unique, and I definitely do not want to be in the business of ranking human suffering. What is not unique is that we're all homo sapiens sapiens, and as groups we want roughly the same things, we have roughly the same capacities. 
History dealt some people a bad hand, but that hand was about power, which is manifested in economic, military, and macrocultural structures. I absolutely reject any assertion that the different hands dealt by history have anything to do with the innate tendencies of a certain people or their flawed culture as baseless and uninformed. End podcast footnote. So much for the narrative of northern France, as presented by Marc Bloch. In this second half of the episode, I will begin trying to convey the nearly kaleidoscopic variation in the conditions of the cellular tissue of medieval European society. In so doing, I'm going to have to delve into the various geographies of Europe and discuss how they differed. The things we learned in the walking tour will start to pay some serious dividends here as we begin knitting these regions together into a full picture, but we still need some way to tie these disparate facts into a comprehensible shape. I'm going to suggest, based on uh, work done by many authors, but Chris Wickham rises to the top yet again, that we keep in mind four major themes that help explain the differences from place to place in Europe during the Middle Ages. First, there's the north-south divide in European culture. Next, there are the impacts of wider political forces on local political conditions. Relatedly, there are local climatological issues. Finally, there is personality, or if you prefer, chance. To take the biggest theme first, the areas north of the Alps, roughly, retained far less of Roman culture than the areas south of the Alps, roughly. The reasons are basically unimportant, but for our purposes, let us just note that the area south of the Alps, roughly, had been Roman far longer, and the governmental system remained in place longer. Given the urban nature of Roman society, this meant that the lords in the south were more likely to set up residences in the cities that formed the heart of society and culture, while in the north the nobility were more likely to disperse to their estates. These factors had a big impact on how southern Europe moved into feudalism. The most important factor was that, because the nobility all resided together in cities with a communal identity, they retained the ability to act as a group to protect their interests. While bishops initially took the lead in organizing the Italian cities, they were quickly joined and eventually supplanted by impromptu city councils. The range of action that these impromptu city councils had was limited, so the nobles would invariably lose control of the land they held in far distant regions. But by acting together, the urban nobles were eventually able to gain control of their hinterlands. So while land holdings were much more concentrated than they had been in the days of the empire, They were spread out and highly dispersed in comparison to those of the nobles in northern Europe. This interspersal of properties helped maintain the corporate identity of the city, and the rents collected in the countryside helped shore up and expand the city's economy. Between the urban areas of southern Europe, the Roman hierarchy of collective loyalties limped along, persisting in some form well into the era of the Eastern Frankish Empire, uh, well after the death of Otto III. We'll discuss its final collapse in upcoming episodes, but suffice it to say that this system, where a regional bureaucracy had representatives in the different urban centers to help with administration and retain loyalty to some sort of power center, was in an advanced state of decay well before the death of Otto III. Within that context, let us just say that the full collapse of any semblance of law and order did occur, and it happened on the local level first. So even as these nascent city-states retained some loyalty to the Frankish Empire, or the Kingdom of Italy, or the Dukes of Milan, or whatever you want, the enforcement of local laws had already fallen into the hands of these ad hoc city councils. This meant that collection of dues and rents was largely self-enforced, so the nobility of southern Europe would, like their northern cousins, recruit armed retinues. Inevitably, these noble families did not always see eye to eye about who owned certain properties, and in the absence of any real law enforcement, street fights broke out between these armed entourages. In most cities, these noble families ended up creating mini-castles in the form of towers or fortified urban mansions within the walls of the city. Still, these family feuds would be set aside in the name of common defense against outsiders, at least for now. It is in this context that encastlemento began, which would eventually signal the final death of the old system, even as it replaced it. Encastlemento describes the historical process by which the Italian countryside was fortified and became the private property of the nobility. 
As a reminder, in northern France, lords built what were essentially fortified mansions, where they and their family lived at least part of the time with their retainers, whose job it was to extract rents from the peasantry and enforce law and order. We call these buildings castles. Depending on the area, peasants might be required to provide part-time garrison services. The existence of these private fortifications did a lot to solidify the cellular nature of private land ownership and government in northern Europe. In Italy, by contrast, castello were generally pre-existing villages that were then fortified and provided with small garrisons, supplemented by the peasant residents. The noble family did not necessarily reside in the castello. Most did not. Most lived in the city. Many villages were fortified entirely under the initiative of the village itself, especially early on when the Magyars were running around all higgity-pidgity. Noble families soon saw the value in protecting the rural villages in this way, given that at least some portion of the rural land was owned by the urban nobles and gave them, you know, rents and resources. Lords would often show up and offer to fortify the village and even to provide a small garrison of their retainers. This might be done in return for some extra rents, the concession of some rights, or even just as part of a patron-client relationship. There was usually some sort of contract. Whatever the initial deal, however, it was predictably easy for the lord to begin exerting more and more pressure on the villagers over time, given that they were now fenced in by walls manned by his soldiers. Over time, the lords tended to assume some, if not complete, ownership of the village land. As in the north, the spread of private fortifications in the countryside led to the privatization of many rural governmental functions and the dominion of the peasantry by the nobility. On the other hand, the very physical structure of the castello, especially in the context of the cultural history of the region, meant that the southern European villages developed and retained a strongly urban and communal character. In effect, the villagers behaved like tiny little cities, with their own tiny little identity, and an assertive sense of their tiny little self. While the villages of the north would develop a kind of communal identity, often manifested in collective bargaining, they never came even close to the kind of cohesion and institutional self-assuredness found in the south. The ability of the lord to completely dominate the village politically was thus always more restricted in the south, more circumscribed by legal structures and traditions. To be sure, the nobility derived great wealth and power from their possession of rights in the rural landscape, but we should not really think of them as owning these villages in the same way that lords in the north owned their manors and all the people on them. The lord might own the land, and many of the villagers might be considered legally unfree and therefore sort of his possessions, but as a communal unit, the village was in many ways a co-equal urban commune that happened to be part of a legal relationship with a lord and, as a result, that lord's home city. The result was a cellular structure similar in many ways to that of the north. Lords had privatized many elements of law and order, and they dominated the countryside via private armies and fortifications. And yet, there was something different about Southern Europe. Instead of being expressed as a cellular hierarchy of rural lordships expressed in bonds of loyalty between the lords, in Southern Europe, society was a cellular structure of tightly interconnected urban places, from tiny villages to towns to cities, tied together by a mixture of real estate deals, economic ties, and patron-client relationships. This kind of networked urbanism had its classic expression in northern Italy, but it was also true in southern Italy until the Normans arrived. But let's save that little dainty for a different meal. Outside of Italy, we find similar patterns of social development in southern France, the Balkans, and the Iberian Peninsula, at least initially. But then, outside forces intervened. So let's start looking at that in Iberia, and our second major theme, the local political history. As far as records are available, it seems that Iberia followed the general Southern European pattern we've seen until about 711, when it was invaded by the forces of the Umayyad Caliphate. Contrary to what you might expect, the result was not the complete elimination of the pre-existing Roman cultural tendencies, but instead, the Umayyads took the surviving Roman political structures reversed their decline, built them back up, and based their entire political system on them for the entire remaining history of Muslim Spain. The only real difference was that Latin Catholic Christianity, whose hold was pretty shaky if we're being honest, was replaced as the state religion with an Arabic-speaking Islam. 
As we discussed in our walking tour episodes, this new polity was one of the strongest in Europe during the 300 years of its existence, and was, almost without competition, the most impressive in terms of material and intellectual culture before the High Middle Ages. Much of its strength came from a tolerance of different religious and ethnic groups within the emirate that lasted until the Almohad invasions, but that is definitely another story. Southern France was the area outside of Italy that most retained its Roman social structure. Impacts were made on society by invasion and settlement by Franks, Burgundians, and Islamic groups, but the impacts of this were in detail rather than in general. As in Italy, several regional government blocks remained to unify the urban hierarchies of the region up to and beyond the year 1000. As these blocks gradually dissolved, the natural successors were largely in the form of city-states. Cultural influence from northern France is definitely noticeable, but I don't think I would call it dominant at this point. In the Balkans, as in Iberia, local history largely derailed the persistence of Roman social patterns. Successive waves of invasion and colonization by Germanic, Slavic, and other barbarian groups took over much of the peninsula's interior. Roman urban society persisted along the coast, and pushbacks into the interior were occasionally possible, but what this process meant for the commoners is such a large topic that I'm going to leave it aside for now. In Northern Europe, the interaction between our normative example, in this case the feudal narrative of Northern France, shows an even stronger interaction with local history. I don't really have time to go into as much detail here, but suffice it to say that there's a direct line between places conquered or colonized by the Carolingians, or their successors, and the spread of feudalism. In Ireland, for example, there was no conquest before the year 1000, and so there was nothing like the feudalism we have described in the rest of Europe. Instead, society was organized along tribal lines, built into highly sophisticated but loose hierarchies of family loyalties. This structure even proved strong enough to fight off the Vikings, so let's not talk about it being primitive. Scandinavia and Eastern Europe were also not conquered, though they were exposed to Western European influences. All the same, they retained unique social structures all their own that served the needs of their inhabitants. Germany and England are cases that warrant a more detailed discussion because of their influence on our wider narrative. In England, the Anglo-Saxons had initially been as fragmented as any other non-Roman area. Their conquest seems to have more or less completely over overwritten whatever impact Roman rule had had politically on Britain. But once they settled in, a gradual process of centralization began that may have been facilitated by exposure to influences from the mainland. Certainly by the time of the Pentarchy, a social hierarchy had developed, with a mixture of free and unfree peasants serving a broad and geographically dispersed nobility. That nobility was, however, gradually but irresistibly pulled into the orbit of the royal court, and this process was driven into overdrive by the Christianization of the Anglo-Saxons and by the Viking invasions. Ultimately, the kings of Wessex absorbed all of England into a highly centralized monarchy. Part of this arrangement was a progressive undermining of the economic independence of the peasant class, but this was balanced by the continued authority of the royal government, who had a clear need to retain contact with the lower classes in order to recruit and deploy armies to fight the Vikings. This system was actually pretty impressive, but it proved unable to survive internal succession disputes. Ultimately, these disputes fatally weakened the House of Wessex, and England fell to an invasion by King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark in 1003. As a small aside, the Danish royal family had, by this point, started on the path of adopting many mainstream European values and policies and political organizational structures, and their conquest of England ended up not being the disaster that one might have expected. In fact, although Svein's family ruled for four generations, they left the centralized English political system basically intact, and the English actually were pretty loyal to them. Unfortunately, when they were eventually expelled by some local aristocrats in 1043, it created another period of instability within the succession system. This created enough instability within this highly centralized state that the Norman Duke William, who had a seriously flimsy claim to the throne, was able to conquer the kingdom in 1066. William the Conqueror had, to be fair, earned his name before 1066, though he was more often known as William the Bastard at home. He took the ducal throne of Normandy as a child, and given his sobriquet, 
faced decades of civil war before he could solidify his claim over the other contenders. In the process, he had systematically eliminated all his rivals and established some dominance on the Breton Peninsula as well. It also gave him the wealth that he needed to recruit an army composed almost entirely of mercenaries, loyal to William personally and expecting reward in land, but with few other inherent attachments to any kind of governmental system. This was the army that William took to England. As a result, William, who, like I said, had some administrative experience at this point, now had a blank slate in England. He really owed nothing to anyone except his mercenaries, who just wanted land. He ruled through right of conquest, put down all resistance with extreme brutality, and clearly had no compunctions about organizing England exactly how he wanted. The result was a hybrid system. William preserved those elements of continental feudalism and Anglo-Saxon feudalism that most suited his ends. No noble was given enough power to seriously challenge the king, and the king retained broad powers over the administration of justice. All land was clearly handed out at the pleasure of the king. If you stepped out of line, the king might not hear about it tomorrow or even this month, but he would hear about it eventually, and when he did, he would show up on the doorstep of your castle with the largest army in the kingdom bar none. Even if they couldn't take your castle quickly, one would need to seriously consider whether whatever it was you were doing was worth having all your lands destroyed and cutting yourself off from the kingdom's economy. The king was also able to distribute lesser forms of patronage to help keep day-to-day -day loyalty uh, by retaining the incomes of a very large portion of the land in the country. On the other hand, William was part and parcel of the feudal nobility of northern France, and he did need his mercenaries on side to rule, even if they weren't mercenaries anymore, now they were nobles. It should be said that castles were a key part of conquering a large country with a very small group of elite mercenary soldiers, and so there was no way to prevent that aspect of feudalism from crossing the channel. And ultimately, William was not overly concerned if the rights of the Anglo-Saxon peasants were reduced, so long as his troops remained enthusiastically loyal and he kept raking in money and resources. So it was that many elements of European feudalism were imported to England, and bonded to the Anglo-Saxon system that preceded them. The resulting highly centralized state, you know, comparatively for the time, worked, so long as England had a strong king. We will see in future episodes that when there was any instability at the top, the entire structure could wobble. But that in turn provided an incentive for the nobility themselves to help keep the system together. So, by 1100, the peasantry in England were reduced largely to serfdom, and landholding had taken on the private, cellular character we just saw in northern France. At the same time, William had structured the system so that England became the most compact and centralized political entity outside of Iberia. He created a clean feudal hierarchy that he used to rule, and in the process created a highly stable and fairly prosperous society once everyone recovered from being conquered. If the peasants were pushed to the edge of poverty, that was really their fault for being born Anglo-Saxons. The situation in eastern Francia was in many ways similar to that of England, in that it was mostly subject to conquest and the imposition of a new social structure. Granted, this conquest began with the Merovingians and lasted until the early modern period, but the pattern holds in broad strokes. The pattern of feudalization I described in the first part of this episode mostly grew up in formerly Roman areas, but the Frankish empires and kingdoms held lands in both formerly Roman and formerly Germanic spheres. Frankish nobles would often hold land on both sides of the line, and they brought the landholding practices from their Roman territories into their non-Roman possessions. This process was accelerated by the establishment of monasteries and centers of royal power in the Germanic lands. This process was then pushed outward by Carolingian conquests in Central Europe, with the classic case being Saxony, where many of the old ruling elites were exterminated. Given the relatively lower population densities of the Germanic area and the often violent ways in which they were acquired, the Frankish nobles often needed to uh, attract colonists to help them settle their new lands. And eventually a class of individuals grew up who would serve to recruit families and settle in these new lands. The peasants and the nobility who were settling these lands would assume some of the basic elements of the feudal power structure as a given. Tenants would owe the lord some sort of labor or rent in return for the lord administering justice and security. 
This was just sort of the baseline. But on the other hand, the deals struck between these lords and these colonists were often very favorable to the peasants, at least at first, with low or no rents due in the first few years, and many rights assured to the peasantry in perpetuity. It should be said that during the Reconquista of Iberia, similar rights often were guaranteed to settlers there as well. And it should also be said that while these deals were very good up front, they would, over the centuries that followed, uh, ultimately be eroded by the nobility. So we have some colonists coming in from outside, but at the same time, the original inhabitants of these lands did not go away. The Middle Ages just weren't organized enough for genocide. In most cases, people remained as small-holding free farmers, with legal rights equal to any free person, including the lords. This was true of farmers who had retained their freedom across Europe, even in Francia, and such peasants often created legal problems for the hierarchy-loving Middle Ages. Such peasants often had the right to seek justice directly from the king or from hired nobles in disputes with their noble neighbors. They often paid no rents, or paid them only to the king, and otherwise existed in a legal status that acted as if the Middle Ages had not started. In most places, this independence was practically or legally limited, but large numbers of such farmers persisted. Now the question, how many there were, in a given area, will bring us to our third major theme, environmental conditions. You see, in northern France, our normative case, there were very few free farmers left. Most were pressured into selling out and had little recourse in the face of the physical force uh, mustered by the nobility in a time of chaos. In Italy and southern Europe, political chaos were never as severe, and the strong village communes meant that it was very hard indeed to intimidate farmers into selling out. So there were relatively more free farmers in southern Europe than in northern France, but that's not really the whole story. In England, of course, the conquest left a very uniformly crushed peasantry in its wake, while in Germany the gradual pace of the conquest, with the admixture of feudal settlers and native farmers, meant that fully free farmers persisted for quite a long time. They were gradually ground down, but not everywhere. In the mountains, and the deep woodlands of southern Germany, and in the marshy windswept wastes of the North Sea coasts, Free farmers in some places represented the majority, and feudalism in its normalized form never really fully took hold. And again, this was true across Europe, anywhere that environmental or physical conditions made it difficult for a noble to physically get wealth out of a landholding, or where conditions made it impossible to physically intimidate or dominate the peasantry. And so, just as many Frisians and Proto-Swiss retained their freedom, so too for the Bosques and Castilian peasants in the mountains of northern Spain. Peasants in the Massif Central, the Breton Peninsula, and the Morvan and Vosges highlands also retained great freedom in France. In the British Isles, the Welsh and Scots and Irish also retained a lot of freedom, of course, but so did the peasants living in forests, on islands, and in swamps. There's one final theme to discuss in this broad overview of the detailed social structures of Europe in the Middle Ages. Because society was so cellular, in the absence of really powerful central governments, much of what happened in the life of any manor, village, family, estate, or individual was down to the personality, the history, and the dumb luck of the individuals involved. On the highest level, some nobles were very good at managing their estates. Depending on your definition of good, this of course could imply that they worked to establish best farming practices, administer justice fairly and energetically, and encourage the growth of trade. Alternatively, one could mean that the landlord was very interested in, and effective at, extracting every ounce of resources possible from their estates, by any means necessary. In any case, such interested lords can be set against another group of lords, those who ignored estate management. These lords might have been too interested in war or politics or religion to take much notice of the requirements of management. They might also have owned so much land as to necessarily be absentees, this would be increasingly true going forward. They might have been children, adult women in the thrall of a male relative, or they might have just been stupid. Whatever the case, there are many reasons why a noble family might, at any given time and place, have been ineffective at ruling their land. As a result, there is a great variation in the legal structures from one estate to the next. The lord in one estate may have taken advantage of the increasing use and availability of money to convert labor dues into cash rents. 
the next estate over might not have made the change for whatever reason. Given the cellular structure of society, these variations were then able to persist for centuries. The result was that kaleidoscopic variability across Europe. In the more rural north, the free farmers and the miserable farm slaves of the Roman Empire were gradually crushed together by the forces that started with the decline of the Roman Empire and culminated with the collapse of the Carolingian Empire. This was a pretty good deal for the slaves, but not so good for the free farmers. Some farmers held out longer in places that were conquered or colonized later by the Franks. The result was a kaleidoscopic variability across Europe. The variation between more rural north and the more urban south, the areas conquered by outsiders or never conquered by the Franks, all combined with the individual characteristics of the individual lord and the physical environment to present a real fine grain of detail that is at best only dimly knowable in the scant records that have survived. And yet attempting to study the peasantry is vital. They made up the majority of the population of Europe by far, and ignoring them by glibly assuming that they were unimportant or unknowable risks putting medieval European history, and all the history that flows from it, into a kind of ahistorical state of nature, where knights in shining armor ride around in a vacant countryside full of mud farmers until suddenly, out of nowhere, someone discovered the Renaissance and everything changed. To avoid this, I'm going to be devoting at least one more episode to the commoners. Next episode, we'll focus on trying to bring specificity to the conditions under which the common men and women of the Middle Ages lived. We'll be comparing the North and the South, we'll talk about medieval cities and towns, and most exciting of all, we'll discuss the exciting and exotic practice of plowing. You won't want to miss it. And remember to tune in next time to Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.